Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. He's going to be telling us about how he's been doing well financially and give you a lot of advice on how you can do well financially as well. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with your uh, brief history of how you became Sean the Money Wizard. Okay, sure. Um, Yeah, so basically I've always kind of had an interest in money dating back to when I was a kid. I mean, I was ever since I was 12 years old, I was reading books about investing, always had a kind of came to an epiphany early that it seemed to me that at every stage in our life, we're kind of going towards retirement. So if you think about it, we're we're studying in school so that we can go from elementary school to middle school. We're going from middle school to high school, and then we're hoping to go to college and then get a job so that we can earn some money. And then the eventual goal there is retirement. And so where I was, where I've kind of been going with it is I'm trying to bump that retirement date up as early as possible. And so I went from basically when I was 16 years old, I started, I kind of joked about it, started my retirement fund. And I was 16 years old and I opened a CD at a bank. It was a 5% interest rate CD. I remember they had a $500 minimum investment requirement. So I had saved up the money that I earned up to that point, which was $500. And I invested it into a, a CD. And my first job was actually literally digging ditches. I'm from Texas and I was digging ditches in the Texas summers, and that's where I got the original money from. And so kind of from there, I would move that CD around, and then around 2007, 2008, when the financial crisis hit, I saw an opportunity to get uh, some stock market investments at discounted prices, took advantage of that, and then continued just investing any spare money that I had into the stock market when I had the chance, Um, and then... I got my first job out of college. I'm an economics and finance major. Got my first job out of college earning about $50,000 a year and really ramped up the investing from there. And um, here we are today. I run the blog, mymoneywizard.com, kind of sharing my path and sharing my journey towards early retirement. What kind of notice have you gotten? I mean, what, what kind of publicity have you gotten? And you know, who's, who's noticed the Money Wizard? Well, it really surprised me. When I first started, I really didn't expect much of anybody that there's kind of a decent number of personal finance blogs out there. So I didn't expect a whole lot of attention when I first started, but I actually logged into my, before I was, I was kind of going back and forth on whether or not I should start the blog because I've always had interest in running websites and always had interest in writing. And so it seemed like it would be a natural fit. And so, but I wasn't really sure if anybody would want to read it. And then one day I logged into all my bank accounts, tallied everything up and realized that at age 25, I had saved up a hundred thousand dollars. And it seemed like kind of a cool milestone, so I figured, why not? I'll put myself out there and see what happens. And next thing I knew, I was getting requests for interviews from everyone. I've been on Forbes. I've been on Business Insider. Um, I like to joke that I was featured next to Donald Trump. And then last week, I was actually featured above Donald Trump on the front page of Yahoo.com and uh, CNBC, MSN. So, yeah, it's been really a pretty surprising and pretty um, pretty shocking response to it, but it's, it's definitely been a lot of fun. Is the reason you think you've gotten that attention is because you're young and you built up so much money so quickly? I think so. I think, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that it's kind of a, it's a pretty relatable story. I'm not a guy who, um, I didn't make any, I, you know, I mentioned I made the investments in the stock market, but I wasn't making 
I probably actually lost money compared to what the general index was doing. I haven't, not a get rich quick guy. I'm not an investing genius. I haven't really done anything incredible. What all I've done is really just scrutinize my expenses, do the best I can to live within my means and kind of the tides of investment have carried me from there. And so I think, I think part of the appeal to it, at least from what I can tell, I guess my readers would probably be able to tell me better than I could, but I think part of the appeal is that I'm not making a ton of money. I'm, I'm making good money, but it's not, I haven't, I haven't hit the jackpot, but it's, it, to me, it seems like something that really anybody could attain with a little bit of adjustment to their lifestyle. And so you put your net worth on your website, uh, mymoneywizard.com, every month and break it down as to what's cash and what's stock and how it all works. So yep. tell us how yeah, old you are now and what is your portfolio worth these days, roughly? So I'm 27 now. My port last update, which was the, the last month's update, like you said, I do the updates every single month, break down all the cash and everything. As of the last update, it was 183000 at age 27. Um, kind of some of the milestones along the way. At 25, I hit 100000 26, it was 150000 And then now I'm 27, and it's over 180000 and going from there. So it's basically what you're saying is you think if people follow what you've done, they could do the same kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. I think so. I think that because really, a, a lot of the advice on the website it, it's it's a lot of um, reducing your expenses, automating your savings so that um, so that you take the worry out of the of uh, worry out of money and take the stress away from money. Really, kind of create almost an autopilot investing system, which is um, kind of what I've done. I've, I really don't spend much. I write the blog, but other than that, I don't spend a whole lot of money analyzing my investments or pouring over financial statements, none of that. What I really just do is um, kind of set up a system in place to where you can really just let your savings do the, the bulk of the legwork for you. So you're 27 now, worth 183. Your goal is to retire in 10 years by 37. And what is your financial goal by 37? By, the, by 37, my financial goal will be $750,000 um, of assets that I could then live off of. Uh, that's the the goal that I've set myself. It is a little bit ambitious, but we'll see if I get there. And that's part of the allure of the blog is following along and see whether or not I whether or not I make it according to plan, or if any any curveballs come along the way. And what would be your plan? Say it it all works out well. What would be your plan to do in retirement, starting at age thirty seven? Yeah, so I, I actually wrote a blog post about this that um, I kind of had a lot of fun with. I called it the perfect day in early retirement, and basically. What I did was say, okay, imagine, imagine you've got the, the perfect day, you're retired, you can do whatever you want, and I'm not, not necessarily you know, the rock star lifestyle of throwing a massive party or taking a vacation, jetting across the world. I'm saying just a, a perfect day, you could do anything you want, what would you do? And so for me, when I look at it, really the things that I enjoy most in the world are things like um, writing, exercising, uh, reading. Uh, cooking food, making, making my own delicious dinners, that sort of thing. So um, I kind of, I actually, in that post, I kind of broke it down into, you know, you get a full night's sleep because think about how often we take something like that for granted, just a full night's sleep. So you full night's sleep, you wake up to a leisurely breakfast, do, maybe do a little bit of writing or some other hobby that you have. So for me, it would be spend a couple hours writing for my website um, from there you know, go into exercising. I 
saw a stat the other day, actually, that I think it was one in three Americans die of some form of heart disease. And so you think, I mean, that's, you can have a, by exercising, you can reduce the chance. And I think it's something that a lot of us take for granted simply because we're just so busy throughout the day, usually. And a lot of that is career-related stress or career-related responsibilities. Um, And from there, I mean, really for me, a lot of it is what it's about freedom. It's the option to, if I want to, if I want to do some volunteer work, if I want to pursue a part-time job that maybe may not be as lucrative pay, but would be something that I'd be more interested in, or if I wanted to explore some hobbies that, um, that I've wanted to explore, but kind of put off because of some of my other obligations. For example, I've always been interested in stained glass making. I've made some stained glass before, but it's, um, something that I rarely find enough time to do. So like I said, it's really a matter of kind of giving yourself that freedom and, and being able to explore different opportunities that you may not normally have time to explore because you're stuck into the, to the typical nine to five career. Um, and when I, when I made that post, kind of one of the most interesting things to me about it was as I went through I, and I asked myself, you know, how much would it cost for me to live, live this day where I wake up do get my exercise in, have read a nice book that I've been wanting to read for a while, maybe pursue some hobbies, pursue some pastimes like that. And the reality of it is that it really wouldn't cost me that much. It's, it's a lot of the, a lot of the expenses are related to, you know, a, a house or that sort of thing. But as far as living the kind of the dream day for me really is not that expensive. Your, your grandfather apparently was quite inspirational to you uh, in realizing that you can have a dream for retirement. What did you learn from your grandfather? Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting story. And that's kind of what really initially kicked off when I was really young, kind of kicked off this interest in reaching financial independence and reaching retirement. Uh, basically, his story was that he was, he basically, he was one of the cheapest guys I knew. He, he raised five kids, um, kind of like a depression era grandfather, you know, very, very conscious of his money, never led on to having very much money. Um, this is the guy who he would, uh, he'd walk, you know, a mile down the street on foot if it meant he could save a little bit on his weekly six pack of beer, you know? So, um, but when I was a teenager, I was in for a pretty big shock because I learned that he actually, having raised those five kids and he worked a blue collar job, he was man, never made more than five figures. Um, he actually had $1.2 million of stock market investments. And so wow. when I, when I, when I saw that he, you know, raising kids like he did, if he, if he can save up, up to $1.2 million retire at age 60, uh, really anybody can. And so kind of that really lit some inspiration under me and it really has been one of the big defining moments that's been pushing me forward. And so that allowed him to retire earlier than he normally would have. Yeah, so he, he retired around 60. It was a little bit earlier than, you know, some of his coworkers. And then kind of what I've gone from there is um, trying to get an earlier start. Obviously, like I said, starting almost around age 16, trying to get an earlier start and then really um, prioritizing it as, as I have. What, I've kinda, what I'm trying to do is push that up even further. What can people find when they go to your website, uh, mymoneywizard.com? So basically, the, the general format of the website is it's a blog. So, I mean, I post one, one, one to two posts per week um, about whatever kind of financial topic that comes to mind. And then, like you said earlier, at least once a, or once a month, I'll break down my net worth 
reports. And so those include the, all the activity that's happened in my portfolios, um, how much money I've saved, where I've saved it, uh, the breakdown of my individual investments, uh, basically all the steps that I'm taking to try to continue to increase my net worth. And, and then I've got a couple other features. I've got um, a roughly monthly feature where I go into some of, it's called the Go Figure series, where I go into some of the different stats about personal finance, some of the some pretty mind-blowing stats that I've been able to find across the Internet about um, whether it be wild spending habits that some people have or areas where you can save money. So really kind of the overall, my tagline for the site is demystifying the magic behind uh, money. And basically what my overall goal with the, with the website is to make money more approachable. I think a lot of people overthink money. They make it, it, it gets a little bit more complicated than it should be. And so my goal is to kind of stay, take a step back, simplify things, um, and kind of just follow my journey along towards my goal of financial independence. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him at his website, which is mymoneywizard.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him at his website, mymoneywizard.com. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Thank you, Jordan. So you said you built up about 180000 or so. What is the breakdown of your investment portfolio these days? So as of the most recent update, and like I said, I do, the, I do updates every month to kind of just overview my portfolio. But as of the most recent update, um, I had about $5,000 in cash, um, 100000 in a taxable brokerage account, and that's a, 
Um, basically, mostly mostly that's just Vanguard index funds, um, and then a, about sixty two thousand in my four hundred one k, and then I've got eighteen thousand in my Roth IRA. And how is the uh, Roth, and how is your four hundred one k invested? So the Roth is actually invested into uh, Vanguard's Reed Index Fund, uh, and then the four hundred one k is invested mostly in uh, the S and P five hundred index fund with a little bit of exposure to. Uh, international stocks and a, a very small amount of bond exposure. So why do you like index funds over actively managed funds? I think that, I mean, obviously there's a, the wealth of literature that kind of discusses index funds outperformance relative to active fund management, and we can get into that if you want. But um, So that's kind of the overwhelming reason behind it is that, that there's all that information showing that Traditionally, p- passively managed index funds tend to perform better than their actively managed counterparts. Um, but then, in addition to that, when I first started, I mentioned I was investing back in around 2008 was when I really started jumping into investing. And at that time, I was trying to kind of outsmart the market. I did my best to do some individual stock picking, and it, it felt like I was doing really great right until I compared myself to the index fund, and I realized that I was trailing the index fund pretty noticeably. And after that, I decided I was just going to go go with the index, mirror whatever the market does, um, and live with those returns, and then free myself up to to focus on other things and other things in life really that are more important rather than spending so much time analyzing investments. So obviously, you've been a beneficiary of the huge bull market we've had for the last nine years or so. But what yeah. what if the market turns down? There would be no breaks and no parachute on the index funds on the way down. Yeah, that's true, and um, I, I do have a little bit of bond exposure there that'll hopefully shield that a little bit, but really, um, my whole investing strategy is buy and hold, so in the event that the that the market did decline, I would my intent would be to just completely ride it out, um, keep keep riding it out, and that, since I'm still in kind of that accumulation stage, I'd actually be investing more in a down market, um, doing everything I could to get those discounted prices and go from there. Let's talk about your lifestyle a little bit. You obviously like to save money, but you say you're not a frugal miser. How do you know what to spend and how to save and how does that all the balance work out? Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, probably, I would say probably the two most common objections I get when I, whenever um, people are first introduced to my story, usually the first, um, the first assumption is that I live with my parents. That's, that's not true. I haven't lived at home since high school, actually. Um, I, live in, I live in Minneapolis. I split a two-bedroom apartment that's probably a little bit too big for me. I uh, live with my girlfriend. And then the, the other one is that I tend to either have no fun or never travel or um, something along those lines. And actually, I, I do my best to travel pretty frequently. I, I take several, I can, and this is all outlined in the website, too, but um, I do do a lot of travel, kind of your typical millennial, I guess, in that sense. That I really, really value. I guess you could say I value the experiences more than material goods. And so, um, whenever I get a chance, I do my best to try to um, to try to spend on that. But really, what it comes down to is is making sure that your spending is what on is what is on what is most important to you. So, if your friends really, if your friends have expensive cars, that doesn't mean that. You, the best use of your money would be an expensive car. If your friends have expensive houses, 
maybe you could enjoy something a little bit smaller in exchange for spending in an area that's a lot more important to you. How much of your money do you save, of your gross income, do you save on a regular basis? About 60% is the rough calculation, and obviously it varies year to year, but typically I save a little, right around 60% of my gross income. And do you do that on automatic pilot, or how, that's a huge amount of your income to save? Yep, yeah, so um, I kind of have a, I guess I kind of have a couple priorities when it comes to investing, and the first one is to max out my 401k. Um, so I, I contribute the $18,000 maximum to the 401k, and, and the reason for that is for the tax advantages that those provide. The second priority is then maxing out my Roth IRA, so I always contribute the 5500 allowable to the Roth. And then from there, I invest anything I can into my taxable brokerage account, which is the one I mentioned earlier, that's mostly Vanguard index funds. And yeah, okay. so what I've kind of done is I've kind of set it up on kind of an autopilot where at the very least, you know, I'm saving basically 22000 a year between the 401k and between the Roth IRA. And then um, usually I'm saving um, at least ten to tw- ten to 12000 if not a little bit more, in my taxable index fund. So do you think it's realistic for a lot of people to be able to save maybe not 60%, but a lot more than they're saving now? Absolutely. I think that, I think that a lot of, I mean, a lot of the traditional advice, you know, is save about 10% of your income. At least that's what I typically hear is, you know, save about 10% of your income and then go ahead and spend what's left. Um, I actually call it the backwards budget where the people will, they'll save 10% of their income and then they go ahead and they'll start paying everybody else. They'll pay their mortgage. They'll pay their car insurance. They'll pay their car loan if they have one. Um, and they, they'll save all that and then they'll, or they'll spend all that and they'll save whatever's left. And so what kind of what I'm saying is if most people flip that budget back right side up and start and start instead, you know, I'm going to max out my 401k. I'm going to max out my IRA. I'm going to save as much as I can after that and then live off of whatever's left over. I think that it's a real big shift in mindset. It's a little shift in mindset, but it can create some really big difference in results. Now, you apparently had some experience living in a million-dollar home. What did you learn from living in that home for a while? Yeah, so that's a, that's a little bit of a story. But basically, through a friend of a friend, I ended up getting somehow chosen to be the dog sitter of choice. So this is, I guess this is a thing amongst the wealthy is they have people come in and live with their dogs so that their dogs can get walks and get fed and get played with or whatever. And so uh, long story short, I found myself in a million dollar home with perfectly manicured lawn and massive rooms and more square footage than you could ever count. Um, and what I found, and it was a little bit surprising to me, especially because I was so excited when I heard that I was going to be living in this home, watching after this dog, I thought I'd be living like a king. And what I found was that really my life wasn't any different at all. And I found that I still went to work every day. I still had work-related stress. I still had my same chores that I had to do. And what I found was that the things that brought me the most happiness while I was living in that home had nothing to do with the home whatsoever. And so that was really kind of a, that was another big mindset shift where I started thinking, you know, maybe going down this rat race of trying to get the biggest house possible and just save or get the biggest house possible and get the most amount of money possible just for spending sake 
may not be the best course of action. Maybe a better course of action would be saving for freedom and saving for experiences and saving so that I can spend more time with people that I care about. And that was really, that was a big, big shift for me. So you're saying a lot of people that are now buying homes probably should not be buying those homes and should be renting instead. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that they shouldn't be buying homes. In fact, I'd probably like to own a home one day if the opportunity presents itself. I'm saying that I think a lot of people do get overstretched on a home, maybe because that's what their neighbors are doing, or maybe because that's what all their coworkers are doing. And so they end up buying more home than they necessarily want or more home than they definitely need. Yeah. Now, a lot of people spend much more than, say, their grandparents did. Kind of put it all in perspective as to what spending habits we have compared to prior generations. Yeah, and that's another interesting thing that I've kind of found as I've been, I guess it kind of goes to as I've been writing the blog and doing a little bit more research on the history of spending and reading about how spending has changed throughout history. Um, and that's and really it's pretty amazing when you consider the how we live versus how our grandparents. And really we're spending at a level today, and I say we just as the collective society, the collective country, we're spending at a level that really hasn't been seen before. And you look, you look, you say 19, the average, there was one vehicle per household and half of families in smaller cities didn't even have cars. Obviously some of that relates to technological progress, but um, you look auto financing wasn't even invented until the twenties. 10% of diamond, 10% of couples didn't even, or only 10% of couples exchanged diamond rings back in 1940, I believe it was. And so I think we've kind of gotten into the spiral of spending more and more um, and relating back to the houses, getting bigger and bigger houses. I know back in 1950, I did a piece on this on my, on my site too. Back in 1950, the average home was 983 square feet. And then, uh, I mean, you look, you take a tour through any old home, there's no walk-in closets, there's rooms are much smaller. And so I think what's happened kind of throughout history is that we've just started spending more and more and more. And I don't think we've ever really stopped to ask ourselves why we're spending more and why we're getting these bigger houses. And so that's kind of one of the things I'm looking to do at the site too is, you know, take a step back and put things in perspective and say, why are we spending more money than we ever have? And what benefits can we have if we maybe did take a step back and live more like our grandparents? So you're saying that because even though people have more, they're not happier than the grandparents were having a lot less. I'm, it, yeah, I would say that if, if having more means that you have to spend more time maybe in a job that you don't like or more time in a rat race dealing with things that you don't necessarily want to deal with, if that's really not where your priorities lie, then I would question whether or not, you know, the big house, the fancy cars and all that really is worth it. And I would propose that maybe paring down your lifestyle a little bit and getting yourself in a position with a lot more freedom could be a huge benefit. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him at his website, mymoneywizard.com. He also has a blog, which is My Money Wizard blog. We'll be back after this.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. His website is mymoneywizard.com. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Thanks, Jordan. Good to be back. So in today's blog, you talk about the disturbing truth about the world's economies, and you kind of give a brief view of the financial crisis and where we are now. Just Maybe just start with how we got to where it was then and just kind of how we are now in, in general terms. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I guess I kind of went through the kind of the history of it on the on the blog there, as you mentioned, but I mean, I think we're all, we all remember 2007, 2008 financial crisis, um, basically very, very long story short, but um, it kind of all started with some subprime mortgage loans where banks were lending to borrowers and overextending on homes. Like we had mentioned er- earlier about maybe buying more home than you could afford or than somebody could afford. Um, and so from there you get, you get these subprime loans and then you, get these complex der- derivative instruments based off those mortgage-backed securities. Um, and basically when the bubble popped, it popped very quickly, as we all remember. Um, and then the government went into action to try to correct it. They started buying back government bonds. Um, their first round was for $600 billion worth of quantitative easing. Then they, when that didn't work, they went in for another $600 billion dollars. Uh, and when that one didn't quick kickstart the economy the way they hoped, then they went back in for $85 billion per month until the economy started getting back on track. Um, and as we know, we've been in an extended period of economic boom since then. Uh, things have been going up. Stock prices have been going up. Uh, so on the front, everything looks great after the recovery. Um, but there are, little, there are some things that I see that are concerning to me as an investor, as somebody continuing continuing to put in money into the stock market. So let's go over some of your concerns. The first one is you say that the company's profits are not as good as they look. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is I see a lot of similarities, and take it for what it's worth coming from me, um, but I see a lot of similarities between the stock market that we have now with the tech boom going on right now and the 2000.com era. And so... Back in 2000, you had a company like Pets.com who was losing $22 million every three months, um, and Wall Street investors said they were worth tons of money. Today, you got something similar where you've got um, a lot of the tech companies like Snap, the Snapchats and um, 
similar tech companies like that, Tesla still has not yet to be profitable, um, and they're both they're both extremely highly valued companies um, and driving a lot of the change in the stock market. And so I definitely I see a similarity between the tech stocks today and the tech stocks back in 2000. And so that's one of the causes con- for concern that I have. So you you think they're overvalued? That it's too hypey and too speculative, and that could lead to a major correction at some point. Possibly, and I'd preface it with the big asterisk of I'm not a stock, I'm not a professional stock analyst, and like I mentioned before, I actually I'm a passive investor. I go for the index funds, and um, that's my preferred method of investing. So. I'll, I'm sure somebody else could tell you for sure whether how overvalued they are, whether or not those are fair, fair values. But what I see is that on a macro level, I see some very similar trends to people getting excited about things based on, you know, big, large user bases in the case of somebody like Snapchat or um, exciting technology in the case of somebody like Tesla. Uh, a lot of excitement about that and stock prices going up because of it. Um, it seems to me to be pretty similar. And then you say that a lot of small businesses are not as profitable as they thought, as most people think. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was actually based on a report that the Fed released recently. Um, basically said that 80% of, the US, 80% of U.S. businesses are actually small one-member companies, and uh, actually 75% of those businesses were unprofitable. So I'm looking at it as an outsider saying if, the, if some of the biggest companies aren't profitable and also some of the small companies aren't profitable – um, that's a little concerning. And so you have to ask yourself, where are these, where are these large stock increases coming from? And that kind of goes towards the third point that I wrote about, which is that um, central banks have actually started, at least some of the international central banks have started buying stocks now, which is pretty unheard of because in, at least during the U.S. financial crisis, the U.S. Mar- the US central banks, they purchased bonds. They purchased government-backed securities, um, in an attempt to try to kickstart the economy. And now you've got, in the case of some of these international central banks, they're actually using similar quantitative easing money that they have to purchase stocks. And so what, as you have money coming in, you're going to have the stock prices lift up as a result of that. And so so I, I see a lot of similarities between something like that, where you know these banks that are tasked with ensuring liquidity for their countries are now chasing higher yields in the form of of stock investments um, seems a little similar to me in my in my amateur opinion, but it seems a little similar to me as uh, when Glass Steagall was re- repealed and you had the uh, commercial you had the commercial banks entering you know complex market derivatives right alongside the investment banks, and so it, it seems like the overall purpose has been a little bit skewed, and so it's it's something that's a little bit concerning for me, and I've, as I wrote about it. Um, yeah, it causes a little bit of concern. You particularly talk about Japan being a large buyer of ETFs. Tell us a little bit about how much the Japanese are buying ETFs uh, these days. Yeah, so that was pretty shocking to me. The Bank of Japan has actually done this at a scale that is to the point where they're now, they now own 60% of their nation's ETF market. And so they're... Bec- Basically, through that, they're set to become the top owner of 55 firms in what's Japan's equivalent to the S&P 500. And so that, to me, seems like a very strange situation to be in, where your government basically is the number one stockholder in a number of your companies within that economy. So 
it's a very unusual economic situation, and it's something that raised my eyebrows a little bit. And then you say that the auto loan market has gone up a lot. What is your concern about the auto loan market? Well, I see some similarities there, too, with the, with the auto loan market and the kind of the subprime mortgage market that we talked about earlier, where you've got, I believe, the, it's $1.1 trillion worth of outstanding auto loan debt at this point. Um, and they've actually started bundling up some of those subprime auto loans into um, instruments and selling those off to investment banks. And obviously that sounds pretty familiar. It sounds very similar to what's going on with the, with, or what happened with the mortgage-backed securities back before the 2008 crisis. So with all these things happening with some high-flying stocks, Japan buying its market, trouble in the auto loan market, uh, does this mean you're expecting a crash, or what should you do with your investments in, in, you know, because of all that? I wouldn't say I'm expecting a crash. I don't think anybody can expect a, can effectively predict a crash, and I think that you should be very weary of anybody who does predict one with confidence. But I do think there's some unusual situations as just a as an investor who invests mostly in passive index funds. Um, and so there, there are some unusual situations. And so to me, that only reinforces kind of the things that I'm preaching on the blog, which is, you know, save, save money, uh, put things aside for a rainy day, continue to live below your means. Um, and it just makes that, it makes financial responsibility so much more important when there are situations like this and kind of the, the interesting part about it is that when you do find yourself living below your means like that, you find yourself less worried about instances like this. Obviously, I wrote the blog post about it because I found it to be a very interesting subject, but um, I actually say that you should look towards potential market corrections with the excitement of a Black Friday shopper on Thursday because it, it, there's discounted stock prices can be once in a lifetime, like 2007, 2008, those are once in a lifetime discounted stock prices. And so um, if you're putting away money and if you're living financially responsible, it can actually serve as a, as a buying opportunity for you. You offer a free book, ebook on your website uh, about how to save money and so on. And one of your principles in there is invest when others are fearful. So it sounds like right now you're fearful. <laughs> is that what you're saying is now is time to invest? <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say I'm definitely a little bit fearful, um, but I would say people are people are definitely more fearful once the actual correction starts to happen. And once the correction starts to happen, um, that's when you really start to see the the real big buying opportunities and whatnot. But um, uh, overall, though, overall though, I mean, I advocate dollar cost averaging. Um, I advocate steady investment into the market. Uh, and so to me, what the market does is really not that big of a concern to me because I'm going to stick to my strategy of I'm going to keep maxing out my 401k. I'm going to keep maxing out my Roth IRA. I'm going to continue to invest whatever's, uh, whatever's left over into taxable accounts. And so to me, when you, when you live like that, then you've got the freedom to, you know, just can, you're kind of almost separated from the madness that may be going on in the auto industry or the madness going on with the Bank of Japan or whatever. So so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's okay, not where I'm at. Another of the points you talk about is to avoid consumer debt. We have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt, as you said. The auto loans are up there, student loan debt. How can people avoid debt, or, or why are they getting into so much debt in the first place here, and how can they avoid it? 
I'm not sure why they're getting into so much debt. I think that I think a lot of it comes back to like what I was saying about. Uh, I think some of it is certainly unavoidable. Obviously, with something like a consume with the student loans, that's an investment people are trying to make into their future. It's um, it's something that is hoping to pay off in the future. But then there's other type of uh, consumer debt, like auto loans and auto loans in particular. Um, so that that is debt that's entirely avoidable if you're willing to you know drive a little less fancy car or save up until you can purchase something in cash. And so, I think a lot of people just get kind of get carried away over what the Joneses are doing, uh, or get or maybe get excited when they're on the the auto dealer lot or or what. I actually saw a stat that the other day that um, the average consumer spends two hundred and seventy nine. $279,000 worth of interest over their lifetime. And so you look at something like that, think about where that money could go if it wasn't going towards paying interest on debt that you may not necessarily need to take out or may not necessarily have a purpose taking out. Um, an extra $279,000 could, could help all of us quite a bit. Part of what you also say is to adopt a minimalist mindset. I guess that's one way to avoid debt is to not go into debt in the first place, spending on things you don't need. But how does in today's world, where you have instant gratification, advertising, everybody wanting you to buy things all the time, how do you adopt a minimalist mindset? I think it really comes down to prioritizing and, and prioritizing to what's really going to make you happy. Are you going to be happier spending more time with your family, maybe not working a job that you don't want to work? Or are you going to be more happy, you know, buying a upgrading your TV? a bigger size TV when the one you have may be okay. And so I think that really it just comes down to questioning things that you bring into your life, questioning whether or not, will they, will, will this really bring me happiness or am I just buying this because, uh, because it's the normal thing to do. And so there's a little bit of going against the, going against what the crowd is doing, but from doing that, you can really put yourself into a position to benefit. So it's some of it's psychological as well as financial. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Definitely, definitely psychological. Um, I like to put, I like to put my spending kind of in terms of how long does it really take me to buy or how long does it really take me to earn this money that I'm going to spend on whatever it is that I'm going to spend it on. So I'm, you really get down to it. Money at its core is a unit of exchange for time. So you have a plumber come into your house and fix a toilet, you're basically paying for his time and his expertise because he can probably fix that faster than you can. But you're paying for that time that he provides to you, fix, providing you a service. And so if you go down that line, if you go down that line of thinking, think about if you're buying a $50 dinner, if you're buying a $50,000 car, think about how much time that's really costing you to earn that money in the first place. And so for me, that's really what it's all about is, is getting, is making sure that what you're spending your valuable time on is really worth it. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean, the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him and his uh, free ebook at mymoneywizard.com. He's also got a blog, My Money Wizard blog. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America 
is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him at MyMoneyWizard.com. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Thank you, Jordan. One of the things you say is to have a side hustle. So what do you mean by that, and what are some of your side hustles? So what I mean by that, a side hustle is basically just any second income stream that you can produce. And so it can be anything from, um, for example, back in college I used to trade baseball bats. I used to buy baseball bats online and then sell them in person to people for, uh, for a little bit of a profit. So really a side hustle is just any, any income source that you can come up with. Uh, for example, starting a blog would be a side hustle. I make a, not a ton of money, but I make a little bit of money off of the blog. Um, uh, there's, a, there's all kinds of different side hustles that people can do. And it's amazing. A lot of them have very little startup costs. You can rent out a room in your existing home on Airbnb. You could uh, walk some dogs or pet sit some animals on rover.com. There's all kinds of different side hustles that people can do. And, and, and so that's kind of one of the things is be looking for different areas of be looking for different ways to make some additional income. You also talk about the easiest source of passive income ever. What is the easiest source of passive income? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, probably not what most people would expect. Uh, the easiest passive income source that I've found is to actually not spend money. And so what I mean by that is if you look at, if you look at how much it, if you look at how hard you have to work to say, save up $100,000 to invest in bonds and then live off of, live off the interest from those $100,000 of bonds, Say you've got a two percent interest rate. That's two thousand dollars a year from that hundred thousand dollar portfolio of bonds. Uh, you could save two thousand dollars a year simply by not eating out at lunch and bringing your lunch to work. Um, and in fact, in some instances, it's actually easier to not spend money than it is to spend money. It's easier to um, take a relaxing day at home on the weekend rather than go to go to the mall and spend a lot of money and deal with the crowds and deal with parking and all that. So. I think that probably the most underrated source of passive income is simply not spending as much money. What have you learned about investing from professional poker players? Yeah, so that that's kind of a interesting story too. Is back in college, I got really into poker, and what I learned that a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the things that make for successful poker players actually make for this for successful investment, and what it really has to do with staying disciplined, uh, managing your exposure to different investments, not risking too much of your 
of your portfolio in any one area is similar to how professional poker players don't sit down at any one table with a certain amount with too much money, um, making consistent, consistently making smart decisions with your money is equivalent to consistently making, uh, and making good hand choices and good, uh, good poker choices. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities between something as strange and unrelated as poker and investing. You have a website that you refer people to, Personal Capital. Uh, what do you like about that as a way to track your spending? Yeah, so I think one of the easiest steps that a lot of people can take to kind of get a hold of their finances and get a control of their finances is to just simply track your money and see where it's going. And I, I know when I started doing this, I was pretty shocked by how much, say, the $10 dinner or $10 lunch and the $15 dinner and how much all that adds up over the course of a month. Um, and so one of the cool things about personal capital is that you create a free account, create a free login, uh, link your link your accounts to it, and it will actually aggregate and actually track every every spending that you do automatically. And you can link your credit cards to it, and so it'll it'll automatically keep that running tally of how much have you spent. It'll automatically categorize where you've spent it. And so I think simply being aware of where the money's going is probably one of the biggest and most important first steps that a lot of people can take. And simply by knowing that it's being tracked like that, I've found that you start to become more aware of. You start to think about, okay, where is my money going? Is it worth it if I'm spending it in this area? And so um, I think that's really one of the easiest first steps a lot of people can take. You recently had a blog about mind-blowing statistics about clothes shopping. What are some of the things that were mind-blowing about clothes shopping? Um, well, one of the most mind-blowing things that I saw was how much time people actually spend clothes shopping. Um, I, I believe it was nine nine years of the average average person's life or the average woman's life is spent clothes shopping um, compared to, uh, in some instances, even less than shopping for food. And so then you kind of have to ask yourself, uh, what, why, are, why are people spending so much money on clothes and um, why is it that it's prioritized upon so prioritized above so many other areas? Um, one of the other crazy stats that I remember was 93% of teenage girls uh, actually rank shopping as their favorite pastime amongst every choice in the entire world. It was shopping. And so I found that pretty incredible. And I think it really speaks to kind of the power of marketing in our society. And I know we talked about the difference between how we live and how our grandparents live. And I think you see, just how much more sophisticated and just how much, just how, but yeah, more sophisticated that the marketing and everything has been. And it really makes it so, I mean, it is more difficult for the average person to overcome that and say, you know what, I don't really need that. I've got the clothes I have are fine. Um, I don't need the most expensive whatever. So uh, I, I think there's it's really something to that there. Um, you are a big believer in index funds, as we talked about, and Vanguard is, I guess, your favorite. There are many index funds at Vanguard. H how do you pick your favorites within the Vanguard funds? I kind of subscribe to the Warren Buffett strategy there. He uh, he recommends picking something. He recommends the S&P 500 broad-based index fund. I've kind of take it, taken it a step further and gone for the total stock market index fund, which actually uh, the S&P 500 one obviously just includes the top 500 companies. Uh, the total stock market one 
includes all, almost all of the U.S. stocks. I believe it's up to almost 3,000 different U.S. stocks. Um, and so really what I'm going for there is just getting something broad exposure, uh, strong diversification, and that really is the benefit of index funds. And so I, I avoid any of the complicated, um, fancy ones. I kind of avoid those and really just stick to, you know, what's going to be the best overall representation of the U.S. stock market. You've got some fun facts about dining out. What are some of those facts? Um, you'd have to refresh my memory. I think I wrote that one a while ago. You did what called nine fun facts about dining out. Um, you don't remember that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah, sorry, Jordan. I must have wrote that one a while ago. I'm, I'm sure with a quick refresher I could remember. but No problem. Uh, you talked about how you can save money on buying a car. What is the car negotiation strategy you used to save $3,000? Yeah, so I actually I did a lot of research online in advance. And one of the, probably the most interesting takeaway from that was that the car dealerships tend to run deals year-round. So pretty much as one deal ends, the next one starts. And so uh, one of the big takeaways there was don't feel pressured into getting a car simply because simply because there's a good deal going on at the current time, because once one month ends, there's almost always another one. But kind of one big overall trend that I did see was that towards the end of the year, as they're closing out the previous year's cars, that's when you tend to get the big discounts on um, the big discounts on the previous year's cars. And so in general, if there's a time frame to do it, it's probably, you know, in that October, November, December range that they're trying to, trying to get rid of, the last last year's cars. Uh, a couple other things I found that are pretty interesting. The amount of intimidation that the car dealerships try to use on you and try to make it feel like, you know, maybe you're asking a stupid question when they're when you're asking them a completely legitimate question. That was pretty interesting. And I mean, I shamelessly brought a calculator into the car dealership and I said, I'm going to sit there and you know calculate these things out and make sure that the numbers that they're telling me actually make sense. Um, and I didn't there, like. I didn't like, like that. Right? <laughs> no, they they were not. They were not a big fan of that. And again, they try to intimidate you and try to make you feel like, oh, what are you doing calculating this? You're wasting everybody's time. But uh, in my instance, I actually found they made a a four thousand dollar mistake. <laughs> so they were going to try to charge me four thousand extra dollars for my car. And if I hadn't have checked it, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe a lot of people do walk away unknowingly paying four thousand dollars simply because they don't run through those numbers real quick. You've written a lot about student loans. Uh, what should people watch out about getting into student loans and paying them off once they have them? Oops. I'd say getting into student loans, the most important thing is to make sure that the major that you're choosing is a marketable major. And so I've written a little bit about this, but um, at least based on my personal experience. But from what I've seen as I'm now 27 and been in the working world for uh, four years now is really the majors that tend to fare the best are the majors that walk away with a tangible skill that yeah. recruiters can look upon. So that your finances, your accountings, your nursings, engineers, that sort of things that you can walk away with a very tangible, they know how to, they know the very basics good. of accounting or, or they know the basics of finance. And Very good. Sean, unfortunately we have to close the show. I'm sorry. Okay. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, my guest this hour has been Sean the Money Wizard. You can find out more about him at MyMoneyWizard.com and also see his blog, My Money Wizard blog. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sean. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. 
Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.